Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, and welcome to another podcast from Dementia Researcher. Uh, today I have come to Surrey to see Jane and Josie. Hi. <laughs> Hello. And we're going to talk about illness perceptions and dementia from two slightly different perspectives. Um, Jane here is the Deputy R&D Manager at Surrey and Borders Partnership Foundation NHS Trust and also a part-time PhD student. And Josie Jenkinson is a consultant psychiatrist for older people also at Surrey and Borders Partnership Foundation NHS Trust. She joined us a few weeks ago to talk about writing your thesis, so you may have heard her little introduction, but I think maybe we could get a bit more of an intro from you, Josie, and also, Jane, you can introduce yourself. Sure, yeah, so I work here, we're actually right here in the Abraham Cowley unit, St Peter's Hospital, today, so I'm a liaison psychiatrist, so I see people over at St Peter's Hospital, older people with mental health problems, and also recently completed PhD in health services research. Uh, which, as Megan mentioned, I spoke about on the Writing Up Your Thesis podcast a few weeks ago. Yes, and you enjoyed your Viva, I believe. <laughs> yeah, we just had a little chat about, about Vivas, and I found out that there's a um, Doing Your Viva podcast as well. Yes, there is, so head on over there and listen, listen to that. <laughs> yeah, I think people have very varied experiences while gathering. Yeah, so uh, Jane, you are... Part the way through a part-time PhD. That's correct. So, I'm no. four years into a part-time PhD. Um, I work here as well at the Abraham Cowley Unit. Um, I have a job title, Deputy R&D Manager, but I'm also what they call a research coordinator as well. So I work on other studies as well and work on lots of studies, not just dementia studies, but obviously dementia is my main focus of interest and, and in research, most definitely. Yeah, have you found it easy to do both a job and a PhD? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm quite lucky because um, I used to work full time and then I reduced it to four days a week. I did four long days, um, but now I've gone down to three days a week and that has helped um, because I'm recruiting on my own. So I'm having to go and see participants in their own homes and they live all over Surrey. So it's quite time consuming, but um, it's difficult, it's hard, but... <laughs> You have to be, I think, quite um, courageous and just keep going. I think, you know, as long as you've got the support. I mean, work have been supportive to me. They have sort of let me reduce my hours. That's been good. And I I can sort of like access my patients from work. So that's given okay. me a sort of like incentive because the, the people are there. It's just taking time to see them. Yeah. yeah. So when are you hoping to write up? Okay. Probably... Um, around next summer I would think. I'm hoping to get all my data in by well, my supervisors laugh when I say that I think I'm deleted. <laughs> but um, I need to get 84 dyads so uh, I'm doing quantitative so um, I've got 42 so I've got half so um, we've got an extension from the NIHR as well for another year but I don't want to take that long so I'm really pushing ahead now to get all my sort of data in by January, February, that's my plan, and then start writing up, analysing the data, and then start writing up um, by sort of like May, June time. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. and then you can mm-hmm. listen to the podcast and get tips from Jesse. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <most> definitely. <laughs> I might give you some tips before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the title of your PhD? Um, illness perceptions um, among uh, early people with early stage dementia and their caregivers, and um, the impact that has on them to seek out help. 
Okay. I guess that's what the diet that you're referring yes, to. Yes, dieting. Person with dementia, dementia thing. Yeah. And you sent me a very useful thing um, where you sent it all to R and D about the Swansea data farm. Um, yeah, and I'm going. Oh, that's wonderful. Did you hear about that? <laughs> yeah. No, is that DP UK? Mm. No. Yes, it is. Yeah, DP yeah. UK. Yeah. Sorry, probably not very relevant. Relevant. Been <laughs> gone by the time we've yeah. 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 Oh, that's good. I'm glad it's useful. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> good. Um, so I thought we could talk a little bit around illness perceptions. Although Josie, you said you don't. You don't obviously specialise in dementia but you are a consultant psychiatrist for older people. Well you could argue that does mean I specialise in dementia yeah. because it is our core business so yes I do but I was just saying that my research project didn't really include that but from a clinical point of view yeah. certainly deal with this topic yes, every day. Definitely. Yes. Yeah so maybe we can kind of just jump straight in and talk actually what you mean by illness perceptions. Okay, well, this is from like, because I haven't, I didn't tell you before, um, I'm not a medical person, I come from a psychological background, I'm a trained psychotherapist, um, and my background is in psychology. So, illness perceptions is people's health beliefs, it's their beliefs around once they've had a diagnosis of a illness, and how they adapt to it once they've got the diagnosis. So, um, it's looking at their sort of cognitive processes once they've got the diagnosis and how they get influences from outside from my family friends or media and also the emotional response is very important as well and how that impacts on them to um, cope with the disease and then either seek out help or they don't so and is Mm. the perception have Mm. you noticed a very different perception between caregiver and patient is yeah, yes. <laughs> that's a big nod. Yeah, I, I think what drove me to do this sort of um, area as well, I mean, I've got personal experience with caring for somebody with dementia, but also uh, my job has involved seeing people, um, carers and people with dementia together in like a couple. And I've noticed a difference between the caregiver's perspective and the person with dementia. Um, the person with dementia, majority of the people that I see they're quite accepting of it. They go, okay, I've got it, you know, it's the caregiver that takes the brunt of it. You know, they really do um, because they can see the future ahead of them and they think, you know, how's it going to impact on us for later? And they, 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 they get very anxious and worried about it. So not so much the person with dementia. That's what I found, but that's mm-hmm. not to say that's general but that's what I found yeah have you because you said you've recruited 42 Mm, people mm, um mm. have you found any gender so you know is it more people male people with dementia and female carers and then the female carers are more anxious you know any any generalization that's another sort of thing that was brought up because I've done a bit of um analysis um when I was at university a few weeks ago and um just some demographics and it didn't um, show up any sort of like um, frightening things or out of range. And the main group of people was people with Alzheimer's. That's the most common form of dementia. And the carers are usually women and they're usually over 65. Mm-hmm. And um, the men carers, yes, we were talking about that funny enough um, the other day, that they have a different approach to caring. Mm-hmm. I think they find it a bit unnatural for them to be a natural carer. And I think they feel like um, if you do approach them about asking for help or they want to have help, they think 
that their loved one might be taken away and put into a nursing home. That's their greatest fear. Oh. So they don't like to kind of, they want to make up their coping. I'm coping, I'm, you know, I'm a man, I'm a provider. Mm. It's not, you know, it doesn't come naturally to them where a, a woman a carer will have a different approach. They're more open to accepting help, yeah. Okay, yeah. wow. Mm. And I know, Josie, you said mm. you now work with lots of older people. Is that similar? You found mm. similar things in your work? Yeah, I think every... Every situation's unique, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. But I, something they're mm. definitely resonating about mm. male carers mm. fearing mm. Um, their partners being taken into care mm. homes. That's mm. anecdotally something that I've mm. definitely come across mm. a few times. Um, it all sounds really interesting. Mm. I'm just curious about what are you interviewing these? Yeah, and well, it's a semi. So, yep, I've got the IPQR, which is the Illness Perception Questionnaire. It's a semi-structured interview. I mean, the caregiver can fill it out by themselves, but I always sit with a person with dementia just to help them go through it because obviously some things won't be so clear to them as a caregiver. Um, yeah, so I do sit with them and talk to them. And I think they find quite find that quite therapeutic, mm. just talking mm-hmm. about it. You know, and I ask about um, their depression and anxiety as well. So I've got a, a hospital anxiety depression questionnaire. An EQ5D, which is a standard quality of life questionnaire, and a general help seeking questionnaire as well. So I ask us all those questions. Yes. And this is early stage, isn't it? Very yes. soon after yeah, diagnosis? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or? Very soon after diagnosis, because okay. the reason why I'm doing this, and there is a gap in the literature, um, a lot of people have looked at illness perceptions um, once they are showing symptoms of dementia and how it impacts on them to seek help to get a diagnosis. But once people have a diagnosis, there's not much research out there on why. And um, once people have their diagnosis, they come back to the post-diagnostic clinic here two months after their initial diagnosis. And then that's it. They kind of just fall off a cliff. There's nothing oh. after them. They usually get discharged back to primary care. So um, that's where the gap is to find out um, where we can kind of maybe link up some kind of, you know, service or intervention between primary care and post-diagnostic services. I think things are very difficult now because resources have been so cut. It didn't actually used to be Mm. the case. But now um, if community mental health teams where the memory clinics tend to be housed, Mm. if they're not providing any sort of active input... They have to discharge people, mm. so people won't get support from dementia navigators and um, mm. charities, local support mm. systems, which mm. could be quite variable mm. across the country mm. from their GP. But mm. you're right; they do kind of mm. fall off a bit of a cliff, and then they only really come back into specialist services one thing once things have progressed yeah. quite a lot. Yeah, and then or if there's additional thing, and problems. sometimes that's a bit too late. Really, they need to be mm. sort of there at the early diagnosis because treatments are most effective, you know, early on. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, I guess not only mm. treatments, but just mm. service use in general. Yeah. Mm. Mm. You know, you can mm. benefit from yeah. so much in that window. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But the, I guess the question is, where do you, where do you base that support? It's probably not best housed in secondary care unless secondary care is resourced much more than it is now. So it probably sits in primary care. Primary care. One yeah. for um, perhaps integrated care systems. Yes. Right? So yeah. one of the things we have locally, which mm. is really great, is called a frailty hub. Where if you meet criteria, and I think you only have to be mildly frail to meet the criteria, you have access to this hub where mm. you have all sorts of different types of support 
So um, physios, OTs, social workers, GPs, dietitians, I think, and mental health practitioners all under one roof. Mm-hmm. So okay, well. I think that is um, the way that services are going is to be more integrated. Mm-hmm. So I think definitely this this group of people post-diagnostically um, where they're maybe just relying on charitable support, yeah. things like that, mm-hmm could receive more intervention yeah. by integrated care systems, potentially. So you're obviously meeting people who have a diagnosis and quite early on. Yes, yeah. You haven't felt any... I don't know, we sort of talked about this a few weeks mm. ago with some people down in Sussex mm. about whether the diagnosis is a burden or should mm. you even get the diagnosis, especially if you're talking about how then there's just a gap in care, There's a you fall off a cliff... So you've been given a diagnosis, sent off into the wild, mm. that's it. Mm. You've now got, you know, stigma is the word that comes up yes. quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. Have you felt that? I know you said the caregivers often feel anxious, mm. but have you picked up on the word about the stigma? No, the, not the ones that I've seen, but you make a valid point because I think some people come back and um, they find it quite shocking to get the diagnosis and you know they, they don't want to accept it. Mm. But I think gradually people will get used to it and the idea, I suppose, is to like, you know, encourage people to think, you know, you can enjoy a good quality of life, even though you've got dementia, you can live well. The consensus now is to live well with dementia in the community and you can make plans while you're still able to do so, while you're still active physically mm-hmm. and mentally ability to make plans and to live well. So I think, um, yeah, it's like you say again, it's all individual, you know, you know, and everybody's the same. You know, mm-hmm. some people find it really useful. Some find it, you know, quite a shock, you know. Coming back to your point about do you think people should receive Mm. the diagnosis, Mm. that is a really tricky one, actually, for for clinicians. And um, I think quite a popular approach, and one that I use, is just to ask the person themselves, if you you did have a diagnosis of dementia, is it something that you would want to know? and also think about does a person have capacity to make that decision and then base it on that and sometimes people really don't want to know but they're happy for you to speak to their main carer and talk okay. to them about what's going on. Mm. Generally I've found in practice most people do really want to know mm. but mm. there are a group of people that really don't want to know and I think it is important mm. to check in with people first. Yeah, so they sort of know something's wrong but are happy to be left undiagnosed because of a stigma do you think it is or is it just then they're worried they're in a system that they don't want to be in or or again does it come back to eventually feeling like they might be taken out of their own home Mm, I'm I'm sure there's lots of different reasons Mm. why people wouldn't want to know the diagnosis maybe because of um, the fear of how things are going Mm. to develop and sometimes um, not knowing can be easier to deal with and I think it's not just dementia but some people don't want to know if they've got a cancer diagnosis for example or if there are other kind of neurodegenerative illnesses they wouldn't want to know it's unusual I think most people do Mm. want to know but there are some people that really don't so I think it is important to check in with them I guess we would find it quite sad wouldn't we if we thought the reason that people didn't want to know is because of stigma Mm. or thinking that um, things are worse than they might actually be so I think a little bit of education around 
that you know the reason why someone's come to memory clinic you know this is where we check to see if people have dementia um if you if people do this is the sort of thing that we can help with and the reasons why knowing is good so you can impart all of that information before asking the question <laughs> yeah <laughs> kind mm. of doing a bit of a sales pitch i guess mm. in terms of why it would be really helpful to get the diagnosis from the point of view of advanced planning and things like that but if people still don't want to know then yeah i think we have to respect that i guess in a way knowing uh, you were sort of saying about this window it, you know services disappear or things aren't there for you mm. so knowing you have it might not change how you're even able to access services if that's you know you might be worried about that you mm. might feel like you're I then just I, left yeah mm. I don't think it's quite right to say that services disappear mm. um, I think what happens is that this, the services are always there and mm. it's just that people aren't routinely being reviewed so mm. and that's because people don't necessarily need the specialist input when it comes to the prescribing etc and when when resources are so scarce mm. you, you have to direct them to people that need them the mm. most don't they but the, the services are always there and if the person did need them again then they would get them it's just that they have to re-access via their gp so they don't just ring up and say oh i need to see you again um they gen generally obviously services are different everywhere but generally they would have to go back via the primary care route mm. to get more support and particularly now gps are taking over the prescribing mm. of the memory drugs that we use there's even less reason for secondary care services to be involved it tends mm. to be when things are getting really complicated mm. so there's the need for that other more kind of public health general supportive element rather than secondary care which I think probably does sit in primary care and is patchy mm. so there are so like I mentioned the dementia navigators earlier that they can be really amazing admiral nurses in the community but there's not many admiral nurses no there's there. not and it mm. just varies where you live and that's mm. a sad thing when you know that mm. it does depend a lot where people live mm. as to what support mm. they're going to get mm. and you want to really hope that people are have got access to the information about what services are available and that GPs and other people that might come into contact with people with dementia and their carers mm. know what's out there and are able to signpost. I think sometimes mm. there, you know, there's quite a lot out there, it's just that people don't, don't know, know where to start, where to yeah. start yeah. or how well, to access mm, it. Mm, you said earlier mm. that once you have a diagnosis, here at least you mm. have you get a, an appointment to come back two months, two months later. later yeah. Is that common throughout the land? I mean, I've not no. come across it. Um, I, th I think, just from speaking mm. to colleagues mm. and from my networks, that most places would have a post-diagnostic appointment. Mm. Um, it might not be with the doctor, it could be with an allied health professional. Yeah, nurse. I think they see they see a research nurse, or not research nurse, a nurse here, they see, yeah. Yeah, just to, yeah. and it's a lot of information mm. often, I think, to take mm. in one go. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So I always direct people to the Alzheimer's Society website because there's so much good mm. stuff on there and mm. they publish something called the Dementia Guide, which I'm not sure mm. if you ever yet. It's so good. Mm. <laughs> Keep copies in our office mm. and we, we give them out. They're really, really good. They cover so many different areas and I think one appointment is just so much to take in, yeah. isn't there? I guess there's often a comparison with cancer, but with cancer you're sort of 
in the medical system, aren't you? Because then you have to have an appointment to see this, to see that, then you've got surgery possibly or this kind of treatment. You're very much in a sort of medical system. Yeah, and hopefully one day, you know, we'll have much better treatments treatment for intervention. Yeah. And then, you know, systems are, and services are going to have to adapt around that. As a as an old age psychiatrist, I'm sure you, as, as a nurse, Jane, we really hope for that day when we have better treatments um, for people with dementia that we can give throughout the course of the illness or hopefully to prevent in the first place. But then when people do get it to treat it, and services would have to adapt to that. Mm. Oh, so how is so you've got 42 people at the mm. moment and you're looking for 42 people more <laughs> how have you found recruiting um, how have you done there's all? loads of people out there I mean I think sort of like you know on the back of people having these diagnoses I mean I first came to Surrey Border six years ago the diagnostic system for people with dementia was a lot slower. Mm. It took them six months to go through the system. Now it's a lot quicker. So it's a double-edged sword, really. Like people are coming, coming to get diagnosis, so recognising symptoms, and the, and the system's quite streamlined now. They've got it down to a T. But you know, there's not enough services or support to follow through mm. on from that. So I mean, we get about two hundred referrals a month coming wow. through to the memory clinics here. So there are people out there so um we sort of like um have a research database of people interested in research they've consented for um to be contacted about research so um we just you know trawl through that and find out people with early stage dementia that have a caregiver and then give them a call you know and that takes the time send out a patient information sheet and if they say yes because everybody will say yes and then go back and see them, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a process. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. quite yeah. an interesting point there yeah. was you're doing it quite close after diagnosis, yes. but also they have to be early stage, mm. don't they? Yeah. Um, mm. Because something that uh, we've I've talked about with other people mm. before is different communities, different people come for a diagnosis at different stages. Yes. Yes. So, But yeah. you are looking very specifically yeah. at early, at early stage. stage people because I think I, they need to be able have capacity obviously to understand mm-hmm. um, what's going on and they need to have some kind of insight into what their diagnosis means to them because I am asking about their perceptions of their of their disease so they need to have relatively you know cognitive um, certain level of cognitive uh, ability to mm-hmm. understand what's going on yeah yeah mm-hmm. and the caregiver I've noted down mm-hmm. that it has to be four hours a day Day? Yes, right? yeah, 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 yeah. So that's just your... Yes. I mean, that kind of sort of tallies in with a lot of research studies. That's kind of like a standard sort of measure okay. of what you would class as an informal caregiver, not a paid mm. giver, yeah. an informal caregiver, which is usually friends or family. And that's the minimum amount. People obviously, you know, spend a lot more than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. So sort of at the other end of the whole mm. thing, we were talking before mm. about your PhD project Mm -hmm. Josie and that was um, maybe you could just introduce it a little bit yeah sure so I looked at probably the most complex most unwell most chronically unwell group of older people um, that you can think of so these are people who meet NHS continuing care criteria so that's what the NHS funds all of your care and who are not able to be treated in a community setting and that service underwent huge changes over a four to five year period 
whereby we had five long-stay units that were gradually closed down. And, and I, I stopped data collection when they had two units, but since then they've closed down another unit, so there's only one unit left. And they replaced the service with um, a, community, a community support team, so I think it was called the, the CHIT, Care Home Intervention Team. So we had people that were in long-stay units who were discharged to community and had community-based follow-up. And uh, these are people who mainly had a mixture of cognitive impairment and severe mental illness. So, for example, might have bipolar disorder and um, Alzheimer's disease as well, with lots of behavioural symptoms and complex physical health needs as well. So, really complicated people requiring a lot of input and support. And the study looked at the outcomes for a group of patients who were resident in these units at the beginning of the study and how things changed when they were transferred either in between units because they have to do a lot of decanting they call it as units close they have to move people around a lot they actually call it decanting i know it's such a weird word isn't it i know it's horrible you could talk about yes. decanting a unit or decanting a ward well, very odd really term. sort of taken the human out of that i know <laughs> yeah i know i've heard it in loads of contexts well, um, yeah whenever you close temporarily close somewhere or you're doing any sort of renovation or building work you talk about decanting <laughs> it's very odd anyway so yes so there was a lot of decanting and uh, so transferring people in and out of units and also discharging people from this system into care homes with this with support because um, one of the reasons why everything changed was because um, previously, if people had NHS continuing care and went into one of these units, they were seen as uh, home for life. So the person would just be there to the, to the end of the till the end of their days, and they wouldn't be moved again. Um, but things change with mm-hmm. um, pressures on um, money, available resources. So um, the need for continuing care would be revisited regularly so previously kind of you got your continuing care in your home for life and that was it and then things changed over the last decade so that you need an annual review for your entitlement to NHS continuing care now the thing was a lot an of annual review annual review yeah wow. so the thing was a lot of these people didn't actually need that level of care anymore so they maybe did when they first entered the system a lot of them had been there for many, many, many years, I and mean, one of them had been there for 13 years. And things had actually progressed, and they were you know, doing quite well, and actually didn't need that setting anymore. So there were a lot of people that could be discharged. Okay, so an annual review makes sense from that point of view. Yeah. I was thinking annual review sounds more disruptive than beneficial. Did you find that, or were people happy to have an annual review? Didn't really look at that aspect no. of, of okay. things. Um, it was happening, so mm-hmm. um, the reviews were happening, and um, the units were closing. So there were financial drivers, and also some concerns that these long stay units weren't really offering the best possible quality of care. So the whole system needed to be looked at, and the vision was to have. Um, one or two really, really very good units. So more of a um, rehab model where the goal was always to get people out of hospital, that they might need to be there for a prolonged stay, but the aim is to get back into a community setting um, rather than a home for life model. So it's a completely different ethos, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, and that, so that, was a, that was a vision. Um, but what I really wanted to find out was 
what happened to this group of people that were in the system as the system changed and also what what was the effect on the costs of care for people because one theory might be that okay so you discharge all these people into the community but how will they do and actually do they just use lots of other resources to so they do they get readmitted to psychiatric mm-hmm. hospitals do they need a lot of gp time do they need a lot of of community nurse time community psychiatrist time is it actually cost effective to do that sort of thing okay this is a lot cheaper to keep people in the community okay mm-hmm. yeah that was the upshot was it yeah it was mm-hmm. yeah did um i mean because we talked just before we started recording this about there wasn't much overlap between your research because you were very late stage and Jane, you're very early mm-hmm. stage. But sort of around the theme of illness perception, do you think there was a perception change from people when they're told, you have a home for life, so you kind of go, okay, I have this, I'm now staying here, to I'm being discharged into the community. Maybe there's a perception change on their own illness. Was it a self-fulfilling prophecy in a good way? Did do you see I have any? to say that generally these people were so unwell that they had little insight into right. what the dementia was so advanced yeah. or mental health problems were so severe that they had little understanding. There's not something that I was researching. No. Just obviously I spent a lot of time with these people and didn't really have so much awareness of what was happening um, in terms of the fact that they were being moved the people that it did really affect were their friends and families mm. um, who were often very upset about this. Understandably, you would be if you, you thought your relative was happy and safe somewhere and for many years and then all of a sudden moving. So there were quite a few um, stories in the local press, actually, about mm. um, relatives of writing to local MPs and mm. protesting about closures mm. of units. So it was something that... Um, relatives and friends found particularly mm. difficult to deal with. It was a very politically sensitive yeah. issue for the I wonder trust. if you do a follow-up whether, because obviously at the time it feels big change that's, you know, unwelcome often or makes you uncomfortable, but in, you know, five years' time you might recognise the benefits of that change, whether, you know, as well as a cost benefit, there might be a... a social benefits so in five years time you should follow up on not you personally but there should be a follow-up to see whether that actually helped yeah so also one of the theories is that really people would do much better in the community mm-hmm. setting because it's less restrictive and got more access to open spaces to activities really it should provide a much nicer care environment and afford a much better quality of life we weren't a- able to show that with the results of my study but it was quite a small group mm-hmm. intuitively it makes sense that it is a, a nicer freer care environment and perhaps i would hope that carers might see that friends and family might see that as well but I think change is difficult for anybody and Mm -hmm. particularly when somebody's been in the same care setting for a really long period of time it's very hard for people to deal with yeah when you close units or when you Mm. when you strip back secondary care and this one's talking about tertiary care but secondary care or more advanced specialist care when you cut that because of resources, it's so important that there is something else mm-hmm. to, to, to back up. So I think both working in a clinical setting, you know, you, 
you have to be pragmatic. You know, we live in the real world. There isn't infinite money, infinite resources. So you need to direct the resources to who needs them the most. But it is so important that we think about people that perhaps need less resources, but make sure that there is something there for mm-hmm. them to replace the services that have been cut. Yeah. But that goes across all of mental health services. Yeah. yeah. Probably other services as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been great. Thank you. I've really enjoyed discussing this. I hope you've had a nice time. (laughs) Uh, Great. And thank you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.